Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. If you don't know, I spent most of the month of October on a silent retreat in a mobile home on Fox Island in Washington. You could call it a cabin. And the last few weeks that I've been back, I've been sharing some of what I learned and have been processing. And this morning, we'll kind of conclude my lessons from the cabin uh, series, if you will. And uh, I've got a lot to say, so let's see what happens. <laughs> um, if you remember, if you were around throughout the summer and the fall, as I kind of shared with you guys some of my journey and struggle, a lot of it had to do with the experience of a pretty significant depression. And um, one of the hopes of this retreat of silence and solitude uh, and spiritual direction was to, instead of just trying to treat symptoms of depression, to try to uncover some of the root causes behind it. And I'd been taking medication and making some lifestyle changes, and some of that was helping with the symptoms, but I really wanted to dig down and just see if there was something beneath the surface that uh, was an er were areas that needed attention and, and healing. And um, by the way, as I say that, uh, I'll just spoil the ending for you. On my last day of the retreat, my uh, psychologist that I was meeting with recommended that I resume uh, the antidepressant that I was on, okay? And I want to make sure you hear that because there's nothing in me that wants to stigmatize or shame any, anybody that is using medication for mental health issues, right? We use medication for all kinds of health issues, and I don't know why we would think mental health is any different. And so if you're on meds, join the party. And I was like, hey, if there's a pill I can take every day that will make me feel happy, that sounds great, and so we're going to keep doing that, um, and there's no shame in that, but one of the issues, even as I tried to deal with kind of the stuff beneath the stuff, um, might be summed up with the word perfectionism, and a realization that for much of my life, I had been paralyzed by this deep sense of need to perform and to be perfect. Not in every area of my life, but in specific ways, my whole life had been plagued by this paralyzing perfectionism. And by the way, when somebody calls themselves a perfectionist in this sense, they're not claiming to be perfect. In fact, they're saying they're the first ones to acknowledge that they're not. They're saying that they're, it's the exact opposite. They're living with a constant gnawing awareness of all the ways that they're flawed, of all the ways that they fall short, all the ways that they feel like they're failing. And so perfectionism isn't thinking you're perfect. It's hating yourself because you're not. And so for those of you, um, for those of us, 
who struggle with this kind of thing. David's words in Psalm 51, in this prayer of confession, are incredibly relatable. Specifically, verse 3, for he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. My sin is always before me. Now, I know some of you struggle with this idea of perfectionism, with the sense of guilt or shame or self-hatred that you're never enough, that you never measure up, you're never good enough. And in that sense, your sin is always before you. You live with this constant awareness of your own shortcomings and inadequacies. Others of us don't struggle with it in that sense, but we've gone through moments or seasons or stages in life where we've failed, where we've sinned, where we've fallen, where we've blown it. And we have to acknowledge uh, and name that stuff. We have to face it. We know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. For me, it was the realization that I'd lived with a hyper-awareness of my imperfections and would rarely go a day, let alone an hour, without feeling some sort of guilt or shame. Um, And for me, perfectionism hasn't been generalized in that there's plenty of areas of my life where I'm happy to not be perfect, right? Um, There's plenty of things that I'm okay not being good at or not looking good at or whatever. But the two primary areas or the category that I would put it in would be moral and ministry perfection. That I have basically for my entire 39 years strived to be a good person and for the last 21 years, strive to be a good pastor. Good person and a good pastor. And this may be TMI, but here we go, right? Uh, Going back into this last year, uh, one of the indicators that I was in an increasingly unhealthy place was that starting not too long after Ken left, uh, I started throwing up every Sunday morning before preaching. And uh, sometimes I was able to get it out at home. Other times I was behind the curtain puking in a garbage can during announcements. And this happened consistently every single time before I preached. Uh, for well over a year. And the weird thing is, is I've been doing this, like I said, for over 20 years, and um, it wasn't like I was feeling nervous or stage fright or anything in particular, but clearly my body was trying to tell me something. And so early in that process, uh, if you don't know, I meet with a spiritual director every month, and... uh, I told him about it, and we kind of walked through it together, and he led me through a series of questions trying to maybe understand or diagnose what was happening within me. And if there's anybody you think would spiritualize something like this, you would assume it's a spiritual director. Um, But after walking me through a series of questions at the end, he goes, well, here's the first thing. It sounds like you hate public speaking. And I was like, yes, I do. I hate it. (laughs) 
And I've had to embrace this very strange irony that God's clear calling upon my life involves doing something on a regular basis that is incredibly difficult for me. In fact, if I'm not in this kind of role, teaching or preaching, leading within the church, I am the last person that you want to give a microphone to, right? If I'm like DJing a wedding or emceeing an event or something, it's terrible. Um, Now, here's the crazy part. I'm pretty good at this. (laughs) Thank you. Go on. And I'm fine saying that because this is not a natural gift. This is a spiritual gift. This is something that the Holy Spirit has put in me and given me the ability to do. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it fun. But there is uh, something in it that is life-giving, both for me and for the church. And, And so that's the first layer of this whole conundrum. But even... Beneath my disdain of public speaking, the realization that there's something else going on, and it goes back to this idea of perfectionism, a moral and a ministry of perfectionism that had haunted me. And um, there's different ways I could probably frame this up, but in one way, the, the task to stand here to open the word of God and to tr- attempt to say what God is saying to his people Um, was a task that was so overwhelming for somebody that felt incredibly unqualified, unworthy of the task, for lots of different reasons. Partially, there's just this fear and anxiety related to, uh, I don't want to mislead God's people. I don't want to mess with people's souls. But also this sense of, um, if you really knew me, If you really knew what goes on in my head and in my heart or something, then you wouldn't wouldn't listen to me. And uh, Jen, early on in our marriage, learned that if she needs to bust me for anything, she can't do it Sunday mornings, right? Like if I was supposed to take out the trash on Saturday night and I forgot, she can't bust me for that till Sunday afternoon. Right? Because if she busts me before preaching, then I begin to collapse. I begin to feel like, oh no, I'm a terrible husband, bad person, I can't get up and preach. Right? All kinds of weird, messed up stuff like that. I have worse sins than forgetting to take out the trash. That's just the one that came to mind. So. <laughs> um, long story short, I don't know exactly, but I wasn't vomiting nerves. I was vomiting guilt. Um, The happy ending is I haven't puked on a Sunday for several months now. And, uh, you know, I'll take one week at a time. Those of you that grew up Catholic understand the idea of religious guilt really well. (laughs) Uh, But we Protestants have our own version of this. Don't we? And particularly, I'll speak to a little niche group here, uh, you Christians that came of age in the American evangelicalism of the 1990s. Uh, There was a movement surrounding sexual purity that for any of us that were in middle school, high school, college age ministries in in the 90s, 
uh, received this very, very strong message related to God's deep love and appreciation for virgins. (laughs) Do you remember that? (laughs) It was like this crazy thing where the most important thing to God is that you're a virgin. And high schoolers in your youth group were really divided. The sheep and the goats were the virgins and the non-virgins. And of course I'm kidding because I look back on it now and I'm just going, I don't know what all happened. I understand a little bit of culturally and historically what was going on there. But I literally remember being at a youth group retreat and the speaker getting up and passing around a cup of water around the the whole room and everybody spit in the cup of water, and then at the very end, somebody was supposed to take a drink out of it. And the metaphor was that you wouldn't want to drink a cup of water that everyone had spit in, so who would want to marry somebody who wasn't a virgin? Craziness, okay? Now, we're not just talking about traditional biblical Christian sex ethics here. I still hold to that. I'm a retrosexual in that sense, okay? We're talking about something very, very different. Even what I think you could call a sexual prosperity gospel, if you remember the messaging, that if you save sex for marriage, then you are guaranteed that God is going to bless you with an amazing ecstatic sex life in marriage. That's the prosperity gospel. This whole thing doesn't have that much to do with what I'm talking about. (laughs) Other than the fact that I know some of you guys pack around an incredible amount of guilt and shame based on your sexual past. And whether you were part of this 90s purity movement or not, for so many of us, that is at the heart of the place where we go, I'm flawed, I'm damaged, I failed, there's something wrong with me, something broken about me that I hope nobody ever finds out about in all the different forms of it. Dallas Willard has been one of the most significant writers in my spiritual formation. He was a guru who wrote about spiritual disciplines and the integration of the whole person as it relates to our discipleship and ultimately an invitation to be active participants in Jesus' kingdom. He was also a professor of philosophy at USC, believe it or not. And Willard coined the phrase, the gospel of sin management. His uh, most important work, if you want to tackle something significant, is called the divine conspiracy. And in the divine conspiracy, he argues that our understanding of the gospel in the modern day and age is that the good news primarily has to do with how God manages the problem of sin in our lives and in the world. And he observed that within uh, 
Christianity, and I guess I'm assuming within American Christianity, that both the right and the left streams of the faith have fallen into this. So I'll read you a few lines where he talks about this gospel of sin management. He says that history has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrong being and its effects. So he's not saying that the issue of sin isn't part of the gospel or isn't the pro- part of the problem with the world, but he's going the gospel that most of us have received is one that's only about how to deal with sin. He goes on to say, when we examine the broad broad spectrum of Christian proclamation and practice, we see that the only thing made essential on the right wing of theology is the forgiveness of the individual's sins. And on the left is the removal of social or structural evils. The current gospel then becomes a gospel of sin management. A little bit more. To the right, being a Christian is a matter of having is a matter of having your sins forgiven. To the left, you are a Christian if you have a significant commitment to the elimination of social evils. A Christian is either one who's ready to die and face the judgment of God, or one who has an identifiable commitment to love and justice in society. That's it. That's our picture of a Christian, either on the right or a left. And so the conversation of sin management on the conservative side is about personal sin and says that a Christian is somebody whose sins have been forgiven. He talks about the bumper sticker that you may have seen at the Christian supply store that says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. That that's it. That's the only difference. You wouldn't expect to see any other difference in the life of a Christian. We don't claim perfection We just happen to be forgiven, and that's the gospel. Our sin has been managed. And he says on the left, the liberal gospel of sin management says that social sin, structural sin, is the problem, and a Christian is someone then who's fighting against the sins in society. And so for theologically conservative Christians, Christianity is about having the right beliefs that our personal sin might be forgiven. And for theologically liberal Christians, Christianity is about having the right behaviors. And both of these gospels assume that the main point of the story of God and the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is how do we deal with sin? But Willard argues that there's a much bigger gospel than that. And if you've been around Antioch for the last couple of years, or, or I mean, the whole story of Antioch, really, but the last couple of years as we've reoriented around this particular articulation of the gospel, the reconciliation of all things. That the good news of Jesus is that God has broken into human history. And he's lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we were supposed to die. And he's victoriously risen again from the dead, conquering sin and death in the devil. And when we repent of our sin and trust in him, we're adopted into the family of God, united with Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that redemptive power comes upon us 
and we get to join Jesus in his mission of restoring all things, including us. The gospel of Jesus is much bigger than the task of sin management. God is reconciling the world through Christ, making everything new, including you and me. In the late 1300s, there's a famous character of church history named Julian of Norwich. She was an English mystic, and she's known mostly for this work she wrote called Revelations of Divine Love, in which she recounts a series of visions that she had at one point when she was terribly ill. And within these visions, Jesus himself appeared to her and spoke to her about the mysteries of life. And she recorded these visions, and Revelation of Divine Love is the first book written by a woman in the English language, the early 1400s. She lived right after the time of the Black Death, a terrible, difficult time in Europe, and she was what's known as an anchoress, a female version of an anchorite, which most of us uh, don't know what that is. It's essentially somebody who has committed themselves to a life of, of, of prayer and intercession. And so an anchorist, and Julian would be one of those, lived in a tiny little cottage that was literally attached to the church building. A small little studio, essentially, where she would spend her entire life. And this little cottage had two windows, one that faced into the church building so she could participate in worship. She could hear the sermons and pray the prayers and sing the songs. And then she had another window that faced out to the world where people from the town could come by to speak with her and for her to pray with them and to counsel them. So a window to the church and a window to the world is where she spent her life. And as she's in there, she has this series of incredible visions. She writes them down. And one of them that you've probably heard is, one quote that you've probably heard is this phrase, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's not just the most famous line from her book, but one of the most famous quotes in all of Christian theology. And what she's doing is essentially wrestling with the big questions, the questions that some of us are wrestling with and that I know many of you are resonating with as I share my own struggle, my journey of depression, my experience of being disappointed with God, the reality of how often God's, uh, God feels absent and distant or maybe even not real. And then even these questions related to suffering, and why do good things happen to bad people? And why do people we love die early? And why is this world so broken and messed up? And she spends this book, this series of visions, engaging these questions. And at one point, she comes to this conclusion. In the end, all will be well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. It's an amazing and a comforting concept. And specifically for those of us 
today that find ourselves in seasons of pain, of suffer, of struggle. When we're trying to make sense of the tragedies and the disappointments of life. There is a point where we don't know why God seems to hide himself. Why God seems to allow so much sin and evil and pain and brokenness into our world. Why God doesn't intervene more. Why God doesn't heal more. Why God doesn't show up in more real and tangible ways. We don't know. But what we do know is that all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. But here's the thing. That quote is taken out of context. And it is true and it is comforting. But it's even more powerful when you see it within the bigger conversation. My old English is not strong, and I'm guessing yours isn't either. So let's read a few lines before. And methought, isn't that awesome? That's a word. <laughs> if sin had not been, we should all have been clean and like to our Lord as he made us. And thus in my folly, before this time, often I wondered why the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the beginning of sin, was not leaded. For then, thought I, should have been well. So again, she's wrestling with these questions. Wouldn't the world be such a better place if there was no sin, if there was no brokenness and evil and wickedness and injustice and suffering? She says we would all be clean and like to our Lord as he made us. Meaning we would all be the people we were supposed to be and life would be the way it's supposed to be. And so she has the guts and the courage to confront Jesus himself in saying, if you really are the great foreseeing God, if you really are a wise God, we might add, if you really are an all-powerful God, a loving God, a good God, then why did you create a world where there's sin at all? Everything could have been well. But then here's the next line. But Jesus, that in this vision informed me of all that me needeth. Saying Jesus himself showed up and he told me everything I needed to know. Answered by this word and said, sin is behovely. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. The all shall be well statement isn't the beginning, it's the end. And it can stand alone, but it means so much more when you see the first thing that Jesus told Julian. Sin is behovely. I didn't have to look that word up. I'm assuming you didn't either. <laughs> it's an archaic way 
of saying sin is useful or necessary. Julian has just been face to face with Christ in this, in this series of visions. She's there as Jesus is being crucified, as he's suffering on the cross, and she's encountered the reality of her own sinfulness and how she herself is, a, is complicit in the killing of God. And Jesus, having endured torture at Julian's hand in this vision, looks to her and he says, sin is useful. Sin is necessary. There's a common phrase that many Christians use when we talk about the nature of grace, the nature of our salvation. And the phrase is that God doesn't need your good works but your neighbor does. And I think it's a helpful phrase. We don't earn our salvation by loving God, loving others, serving the world. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor actually does. And <clears throat> it's not just then, if I would embellish upon it, that God doesn't need our good works. It's that God doesn't need our bad works either. In other words, God did the work, and that work is finished, and he doesn't need to be constantly reminded of why he did what he did for us. He accomplished it for all time. God puts our sins away. He forgives us. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, puts our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he no longer remembers them. But we, as individuals, and as the church, we do remember, which is what makes this thing so confusing when we talk about the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God that he no longer remembers. That's great, but I do. So God doesn't need your sins but you do. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to Julian. That sin is behovely, that it's useful, that it's necessary. And that it tells us the truth about who we are. And it reminds us the truth of who God is as our Savior. That this is the essence of justification. That the unrighteous are declared righteous by grace alone that we are both at the same time sinners and saints. And so sin is useful. Sin is necessary. If all shall be made well. Let me show you a painting. I just wanted to see who was gonna laugh. Most of us will recognize this artist, won't we? Thomas Kincaid, known as the painter of light, also known as the artist that critics hated but Americans loved. <laughs> uh, my dad was good friends with Thomas Kincaid. In fact, they used to paint together. Uh, in one conversation, my dad said, you know, Tom, my son Pete really doesn't like your work. 
<laughs> and Tom said, yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> uh, Kincaid died a few years ago, tragically. Um, before he died, I read an interview with him that helped me to understand why it is I never enjoyed his work. By the way, if you have one of these on your wall, or you probably have a puzzle, don't you? <laughs> we can still be friends. In the interview, Kincaid said that his paintings uh, were meant to imagine a world where Genesis 3 never happened. He wanted to imagine what would have happened, the story of humanity, the story of the world, if there had been no fall, if sin had never happened, and if life would have just stayed on a trajectory from the Garden of Eden on. And so he paints these it is beautiful, serene, light and love and texture, sense of home and comfort or whatever else. Um, and for him, it's a picture of a world without sin. But here's my problem with that. It's just another version of the gospel of sin management. Because if we're honest, a world without sin would mean a world without grace. A world without forgiveness. A world without redemption. And ultimately, it would be a world without Jesus. Is that really what we want? Or are we starting to see that sin might actually be useful, might even be necessary, in a strange way, beautiful. Now there is a version of Kincaid that I would hang in my home, and it looks like this. <laughs> this is a slightly modified version. I can't remember the name of the artist who did this, but he has a whole series, Wars on Kincaid. <laughs> and it's not just because I'm like a depressed, recovering punk rocker. It's because all of a sudden that looks like the world we all live in. <laughs> that looks like reality. Not all the time. There are days where it's sunshine and rainbows. But when we step back and look at the story that we find ourselves in, this is the picture. And what if the necessity of sin, what if the fact that for whatever reason God did create a world that had the potential for pain and brokenness and evil and justice and suffering and sin, What if it's so that he could bring about a true beauty, a true story of redemption? In one of my last days of my retreat, I was sitting at a picnic bench overlooking the Tacoma Narrows, passage of water in the sound that separates Gig Harbor from Tacoma. And I was just sitting there looking at the water, and boats going by, and fishermen. 
And uh, in my journal later that day, I wrote, this morning as I was sitting at a picnic bench overlooking the narrows, I saw a kingfisher dive into the water and come up without a fish. Eugene Peterson tells the same story, watching the kingfisher dive under the water again and again, each time failing to catch a fish. And here's how Peterson says it. I started looking at that kingfisher, and then I started counting, and I counted 37 dives before he got the first fish. And I thought, wow, he's the kingfisher. (laughs) I continued to write, Failure, or not getting it right the first time, is what humans do. Sin is our occupation. It's how we spend our lives. Trying and failing and trying again. In fact, walking is equal parts falling and catching yourself. I see that my life has been marked by haunting internal voices telling me, live with no regrets, pursue perfection, avoid sin, failure is not an option. What if we replaced those messages with the necessity of sin? Live with regrets. It's not okay to be perfect. Sin is our job. And failure is the only option. I find comfort in knowing that we aren't the first people to wrestle with these questions. What do we do with our regrets from the past? What do we do with the fact that we aren't the people we are supposed to be? What do we do with the fact that we do live in a world where there is a Genesis 3? How do I deal with my guilt and with my shame even if I can believe the good news that God has forgiven me and no longer remembers? I still do. And many of us still have the scars to prove it. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul wrestles with his own sin. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was giving a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't know what this is, and I think that's Paul's genius, because we can all assume that whatever we struggle with is exactly what he's struggling with. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delighted in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's telling us the contents of his dialogue with Jesus, his pleading with Jesus to take away this besetting sin, this struggle, this temptation, this addiction, 
this compulsion, whatever it is that he's wrestling with, asking Jesus, would you please show yourself real? Show yourself strong. Show yourself powerful and loving and true by changing me, by changing my life. And Jesus listens and he answers Paul's prayer not by taking away the thorn, but by simply stating, my grace is sufficient. And Paul himself, at the beginning of the verse, looks back and realizes, the reason Jesus told me that and allowed this whole thing to go down was that I might not be conceited. So he saw the usefulness of his sin, the necessity of his sin, and even in the beauty of his sin. Because his sin revealed to him the truth about who he is and the truth about how Jesus is, who Jesus is. And so Jesus answered to Paul, just like Jesus answered to Julian of Norwich, wasn't to take away the sin or the struggle or the scars but to use it to display his grace. There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. And in this art form, I've got a picture of it for you. Broken pottery is put back together. And where there were cracks, the artist uses gold to rebuild And in this form of art, no attempt is made to hide the repair. In fact, this technique actually highlights the specific and exact places where the piece was broken. And the repair becomes part of the history or the story of the piece. And so the object is not beautiful despite the fact that it was broken, but it's more beautiful because it was broken. And the truth is that most of us spend most of our lives trying to hide the broken parts of ourselves. The guilt and the shame that we pack around of our failures and of all sins. We do anything we can to put the pieces back together, to hold our lives together in such a way that nobody would ever know where those cracks are. It's because we forget the necessity of sin. That our lives in the hands of Jesus, he wants to take the places of our brokenness, our failure, and our sin, and not hide them, but highlight them to make us even more beautiful and to reveal even more of the goodness and the glory and the grace of God. And so the grace of Jesus is the gold that transforms our broken lives and displays the love of God to the world. Close with one of my favorite quotes. You've heard it from before from the great reformer Martin Luther. He says, Beware of ever aspiring to such purity that you do not want to seem to be a sinner. For Christ only dwells in sinners.
Sometimes when people are checking out Antioch um, and wanting to know whether this is the church for them, one of the questions they would ask me is, who's allowed to take communion at your church? And it's usually a way for them to ask, are LGBTQ people welcomed and accepted at your church? Or do you think homosexuality is a sin? And my answer to who's allowed to take communion at our church is simple. What is it? Only sinners. The only people welcome here are sinners. If you're not a sinner, you're not going to like it here. (laughs) If you're not a sinner, you don't need this table. Only sinners are welcome at this table. Christ only dwells in sinners. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Christ, we stand in your presence as your people this morning, overwhelmed with the gold of your grace. We couldn't concoct a more beautiful story than the story of redemption that we find ourselves in. And God, we struggle. I struggle. There are still so many broken places, not just in my past, but in my present. Lord, would you help me, would you help us to embrace our sin as necessary, as useful, as an opportunity to reveal to us, to one another, and to the world the truth who we are, who you are. Lord Christ, thank you that yes, you do give us forgiveness, but even more than that, you give us yourself. You aren't just the means, you are the end, Jesus. And whether we feel you or not, you are with us, you are in us, we are in you. We are safe in your love. May we receive your grace again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.